welcome everybody to the Father, the Daughter, and the Holy Podcast. Join my father, Rabbi Avi Horowitz, and myself, Ayelet, as we discuss relevant and meaningful ideas and topics inspired by the weekly Torah portion. This podcast is not religiously exclusive. No matter what religion you practice, please feel free to join us as we glean timeless Torah wisdom to help us better navigate the world we live in today, or simply put, just to give us something to think about, because that's always really awesome. So let's get schmoozing. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Father, the Daughter, and the Holy Podcast. We are very excited to be back here with you. And we are going to be talking about this week's theme, which is slavery and freedom. What do you think about slavery and freedom? Have you ever thought about it? Is it something that you ever comes to your mind? One of those topics that you either think about often or doesn't really come up for you, I think. No? Yeah. But you just threw me a curveball because you said <laughs> we were going to talk about how we, we were going to talk about like thinking and and creating ideas. Yeah. So let's go there. That well, was just a random intro. <laughs> no, because we were going to talk about, we'll, we'll try to talk about both. Okay. Um, a lot of times when um, I go into classrooms, I, I like to teach. I like to teach the students the one, two, three of textual analysis. The one, two, three. The one, two, three method is very simple. You look at a text and you decipher it. You translate it. Then step two is you look at your translation and you try to put it in your own words. In other words, what what do you think essentially is being said, right? And step three is you compare what you think essentially is being said to what actually is being said. You see what I mean? So... So we can we can give a lot of examples, but let's just like wing it and let's start from here, from the beginning of the reading uh, this week's portion, where um, where it says, "Vayidaber Elokim El Moshe." In Hebrew, of course, "Vayomer Elav Ani Hashem." So the translation would be, and God spoke to Moses, and he said to him, I am God. So if you, if I had to put that in my own, um, how would you say that? How would you like um, summarize was, that? How, how would you say, what, what is that first saying? God's introducing himself to Moses. Or God's speaking to Moses. So how would you say it? And God spoke to Moses. Right, so you'd say, and God spoke to Moses, which means that the, that means that the whole second part of the verse is actually extra. In other words, if I'm speaking to you, I don't need to say, "Oh, it's me that's speaking to you." You're looking at me, right? Mm-hmm. So, so what's the meaning of? So, so you're already starting at a major part of the of the issue of the problem of the verse because it's saying, and um, God spoke to Moses, and He said to him, "I am God." So that's already opening up your mind 
to thinking like, what in the world is going on? You're already starting the analysis um, exercise. The, the second part of the the second part of the verse is begging for some meaning, and he said to him, "I am God." So, so if you go even more technically, you look at the first part. It says, "And God spoke to Moses." The second part is, "And he said to him, I am God." Right. Mm-hmm. So, so, right. So we, we're 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 at a loss to understand. First of all, what's the difference between speaking and saying, which is two different verbs? Mm-hmm. And we're also probably going to have to wonder what, if I if I'm talking to you and I say, um, um, I yell at I am your father. <laughs> so I must be telling you something that you didn't know, right? Right. So when you when you're saying that, I'm already starting to think like maybe back then there was a lot of you know more spirituality vibes and people just felt like they were receiving messages from different places, different sources maybe so right well it was important to be like i'm god yo that's <clears throat> enough <laughs> okay, but say that the thing is that that type of reading is it would probably bear you know bears bear some some semblance to the to the intention of what whoever was writing it but the traditional way of looking at this is that this is not these aren't trivial words these are very very heavy very deep words that you know, are you resonate here and as as in any any other verse in in the Torah, and they, they didn't they didn't mince words, and they also didn't you know say words you know just superfluously. Words were meant to carry a lot of weight. Um, you know, it's the oldest document in the world. You know, even if you look at it from a secular point of view, there's certainly something very heavy to a document that has the most popular document in the world for thousands of years. You know, the Bible. Mm-hmm. So. So, so, if you, so again, so like the analysis starts when you ask the question because you're saying, okay, this, this is what I hear, but this is what it's saying. So now let's compare compare what I hear to what's actually being said, and then you start opening up all of the questions that all of the commentaries deal with. You know, at least traditional commentaries. So the truth is, even modern commentaries have to deal with these things. Something's being said here. Mm-hmm. If you take the document seriously, if you read the document as if it's like a magazine, so then you won't think twice about it because there's verbiage and there's you know free expression that's there just like for to give it a ring or whatever it is. But but in the, the, the basic assumption of text in in the Torah is that there is none of that, right? And it, and if there is, it's very very seldom and it's. Very celebrated. It's like there's there's an idea of Dibra Torah Kalashan Bnei Adam that sometimes the Torah will express itself in very 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 slight ways, but in words that are used to kind of um, get get itself heard, or to create a certain colloquialism that that allows itself to be heard better by the person that's reading it. There's a stylistic aspect to certain very minimal um, expression in, in, in certain parts of the Torah, but in general, in general, there's this desire to there's this desire to um, uh, you know inter- t- t- the desire to communicate some very important issues. Okay, so so here, for example, you know it says God speaks to Moses and he says to him, "I am God." So 
we already analyzed the speaking and the saying, right? Those are two verbs. And then the next thing is, what would you analyze? If you, if you, read, if you read the Hebrew, then you are, you know, privy to another secret going on here because it says Elohim spoke to Moses and he, he says to him. introduces himself with a different name. A different name. So it's like if I say to you, um, you think I'm your dad, but my name is the father. Voldemort, <laughs> no, whatever. Uh, but I'm just saying, if, if I say to you, if I reveal to you myself to you in a different name, so you know that it says in the, in the verse originally. So clearly, it's meant to to make me think that there's a contrast between perceptions. Right. First, there's one perception, and then God is giving Himself to Moses and communicating to him that he should have. He's inviting him to have a different perception of himself, mm-hmm. right? <clears throat> Meaning the the way we know people is by their names. So I know you as my father, but if you were to introduce yourself now as a Supreme Court judge, for example. Right. Then... So you have to, you have to like really open yourself up to the sensitivity of names and also the, the, the sensitivity of, of words in the Torah in general. But the names, um, is the names of God is a very, very esoteric part of the Torah. It has a lot to do with, you know, secret, you know, traditionally uh, esoteric tradition. Um, did I just say traditionally esoteric tradition? <laughs> okay. But in any case, but we're not going to go there. But but we do see um, that the, the commentaries deal with the difference between these two names. And it's as if, it's, as if Moses is being treated or he's being invited in this in this vision of prophecy to go into the understanding of God that's somewhat deeper than what he was being uh, led to understand until until this point, or he himself had achieved understanding in until this point. Mm-hmm. There's a revelation going on over here. That already justifies just in itself why there would be a, a repetition, meaning it's not just, and you know, God spoke to Moses, it's God with representation A speaks to Moses, and he introduces himself as God B. The the behind the scenes conversation that's going on here um, in in the tradition that's brought by some of the very traditional commentaries is something very fascinating and and it actually does have to do with our topic this week. Um, but before we jump into the topic, which is slavery and freedom, which is slavery and freedom. <laughs> well, we're going to take. I, I'd like to take a certain take on slavery and freedom. We're not going to talk about the whole concept, but I'd like to take one idea from what's going on over here. I mean, we know slavery and freedom is a major concept in, in, of course, in the Torah, you know, one of the famous quotes of the Jewish poet and the German poet Heinrich Hein was that um, since the Israelites, freedom speaks the language of Hebrew, something like that, he said. I'm not sure if that's a direct quote, but basically the idea of freedom um, is something born out of these stories, you know, we, what we understand to be individual rights and individual freedom is something that's championed by the Bible. So that's his way of saying it. But in any case, just to finish this idea of God being, uh, I am God. So there's a very sensitive thing going on over here. Whereas if they follow the story from last week, it says that, um, Moses gets his mission, 
Moshe Rabbeinu, right? He gets his mission. And he didn't really, he wasn't so excited about his mission originally. Um, he was very humble in that sense that he didn't want to take it on for himself. He didn't think he was the right person, um, which is another conversation. Exactly how could that be? If God is charging you with something and you can imagine you're saying, oh, thanks for no thanks. You know, I don't think I'm the right guy. It's like, hello. But okay, whatever that means. But, it's funny, though, just quick side point. I feel like that happens every day with all of us. It's like we're given a bunch of stuff because God expects us to go and do things. And we're like, nah, that's so hard. Or like, I don't really want to. Or like, nah, Netflix is chill. So like, I'll just sit here the whole day and right. well, you, not you, do you, things. I mean, you understand that there's a difference between what, I mean, we, our, our assumption is that if God is speaking directly to you, and it was a, well, let me, let me I just understand the difference, but it just rang up in my mind as funny. It's like. I never thought about that before. Like, huh, technically we're all kind of doing our little microcosm of Moses being like, thanks God for all the things that I need to do everything that you want me to do. But like, I'm going to just. Right. No, I appreciate, I appreciate. And I, I think it's, it's generally correct that this, you know, the parallel that you're making. The difference is that, of course, obviously we assume that in, in, a, in a prophecy, it, you're, you're getting direct communication. Mm-hmm. It's, but it's also important to state that, you know, prophecy, like you had said before, when you had said, you know, maybe the Pasuk means that, you know, God is saying to him, like, you know, don't think I'm a, uh, you know, just a thing. You know, I'm really, it's, prophecy is something, that you, you have to mention prophecy as like a deep, deep meditation, at least, where a person is really connected completely to the spiritual realm, Right. And without getting into a more deep description of what prophecy is, but it's like a person is totally, totally connected to God, you know, to, to whatever he understands God to be. Right? But it's, it's an entire life of preparation, mental preparation and emotional preparation to be able to be a prophet in Judaism, in our tradition. There's no such thing as getting, getting prophecy just like, oh, I had a prophecy last night, you know, and you're just a regular dude. That, that, that doesn't happen. That's, that's the major uh, reason why Judaism has a hard time believing any prophet. We, we're, we're, not, we're, not, uh, we're not easily swayed by somebody that comes and says, oh, you know, all bleary-eyed in the morning says he has a prophecy. I mean, who are you? You just don't get prophecy. And, and of course, that's why Judaism, like I said, rejected um, the prophecies of of even those within Judaism. It's not. It's not a. You know. It's not just a. It's it's not a measuring stick that we use to 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 dispel the claims of others that aren't part of the tribe, so to speak. It's it's really within the tribe too. You know, you can be from the Benais, from the people of Israel, and claim you had a prophecy, and there were false prophets. Right. And um, and there's you know tractates and tractates that we learn of how to deal with with people who say they're witnesses or prophets and false prophets. And I think there's definitely a lot here. About yeah. Prophets. <laughs> yeah. But I'm just saying I, we're, we're very, we're very far removed from the idea of prophecy. We just think it's like communication, like any communication. It's, it's the deepest communication, the most ecstatic, I would say communication. It's the thing that in our tradition, it's, it's what it's the, it's the perfection of man to be able to be a prophet. That is the highest level. To be able to be a person who's totally connected to the divine, even if it's a couple times in his lifetime, 
but but then but because it means an entire life of of meditation and perfection um striving for perfection personal perfection that's blowing my mind because i'm thinking about all the prophets in our you know in in tanakh in the bible that you know with being with what we spoke about in the first podcast about the nature of you know torah portraying more of uh, the faults of our heroes I'm thinking about all the people who had prophecy and I remember all their mistakes, obviously, because that's what we learn. And I'm like, but they weren't perfect. And you're describing now people who are, you know, really on the pinnacle of perfection. Well, perfection is, I mean, what do I mean by perfection? I mean, I guess if I used, um, kind of, I don't know, Kabbalistic esoteric words, I would say the people are given a vessel. And when when a person's vessel is uh, perfected to the extent that that person, you know, can strive and can um, can um, y- y- you know utilize their their own vessel, which is their the whole conglomerate of their talents, their abilities, their capacities, so to the maximum. So they, it, 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 it's not a comparative game. It's like maybe the vessel of Moses is greater than the vessel of others, right? As you know, but but he, in his own uh, way, was able to fill his vessel and, and complete it to the extent um, that he could, and therefore he became a great prophet. It doesn't mean that he can't make mistakes. It just means that it just means that there's a striving, there's a conscious striving to to take advantage of. Of uh, of all of the, um, uh, the the spiritual uh, tools that a person is given. That, that's really what I mean. Uh, we're getting very esoteric. yeah. We're getting we're also getting very sidetracked, but it was yeah. a good conversation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so we were talking about prophecy, and then we're talking about analyzing texts and creating questions, and now we're talking about the particular. Um, analysis of this particular verse and when we make a very simple analysis we're led to our topic of this week which is slavery and freedom and how 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 does that happen well the word for god of elohim in our tradition is the god that runs the world all right that's and it's the the god that runs the world is the god that runs the world of the universe um in a measured way. In other words, Elohim is like the God of justice, so to speak. Like law and order, na- nature, everything about how the things just because they work, like gravity. Right. So in an S in an essential way, there is a there is a justice, which is like a equilibrium in the world of God's creation. That's the understanding of Elohim. Whoa. My mind just got blown for a second because I was like now evolution evolution could also be divine justice. You know, there's like that balance and equilibrium of God's going like, this is what happens in the world. Like, survival of the fittest, evolution, this is all just part of how the world runs itself. Right. Or, Checks and balances. That, yeah. Cool. Ying, yang. There is that. There is that Elohim. So if, 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 if God appears to Moses with that name, and then he says to him, I am... The Tetragrammaton, which is a fancy way of saying the four-letter name, which in our tradition is the holiest name, it's the most divi- it's the most um, 
uh, essential name that we can possibly even utter as human beings, there, there, there's something going on over here. As God is inviting Moses to go deeper into his essence. So, like on the surface, what we're saying is, God is saying, when you follow my activities or my actions or the way things pan out in the world, Moses, I think you're getting stuck. So, so Hashem says to Moses, God says to Moses, look, I want you to think of me as Yud Kevavke, which is the four letters of God, which is um, beyonds this world. It's, it's the world that you don't see at all. And that's the very big oversimplification, but basically that's what we're going to say. And within you know the subtext of this story, what's going on is Moses is given the mission that we we, we got caught up, you know, got stuck with. He's he's given the mission, and then we got sidetracked. But he's given this mission, and okay, he has his brother Aaron, Aaron, who's coming to help him, and they basically. Um, have a following of the of the the people that they're supposed to speak to first to tell them that you know the time of deliverance has come, and they're going to take them out of Egypt. And the people are willing to listen to it and be and be hopeful, you know, and believe. So after that, they go to Pharaoh and they give them their speech and they do their show of the miracles, etc. And and Pharaoh is totally not plussed. You know, Pharaoh is totally not plussed. He is. Not only not plus, but he's like, who who are you speaking in the name of? Of what? Of what God? Right. So there's this play of like, you know, in the world of paganism, it's like, which so which God are you speaking in the name of? Like, they didn't have this clear about what we're talking about. Like, I don't believe you that you're talking in the name of God. You're full of baloney. You know what I'm saying? You're <clears throat> talking about your own projections. But what what does it mean? When when Pharaoh says like who's this God that's sending you? He means it's like he's like a he doesn't believe in this God that the way Moses is presenting him like the all powerful God. So after that, um, he Pharaoh that is he makes things worse for the Jewish people, and the people themselves start turning on Moses and, and they say you know you've only made things worse. And in, Moses, in turn, turns around to God and says, uh, he returns to God, the, the, the verse says in the last reading of last week. And he says, God, my God, my personal God, why have you done such evil to this people? Why have you sent me? Since I've come to Paro to speak in your name, it's only gotten worse, and you've not saved the people. So he's basically expressing his first. Uh, crash with reality of God's world about how things go. You know, he's, he's saying like, I, my my experience with with you, God, until now has been like very direct and very forceful, and seemingly very straight in terms of cause of an effect of the you know the God of justice, and you're telling me this is a thing that's in motion. You know the the the, the salvation of the Jewish people and the you know taking them out of Egypt and from slavery and and it's it's actually gone backwards we've gone backwards and according to our tradition this wasn't something that happened from day to day after this original um 
experience and encounter with Pharaoh, Moses actually for decades disappears. Really? I never learned that. Yeah, decades. And that now when Mo Moses comes back the, in, in this week's portion, he's actually 80 years old. I thought he was 80 since the beginning. No. This whole thing. No, so it's like he appears, like there's the faint, you know, there's the light on the horizon and everybody gets into it and then he disappears. And so this is, to put it in perspective, I mean, it's, it's this is like a big down. It's almost as if people would, would be saying, like, you know, we'd rather not have had hopes just to be dashed once again. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like that that type of feeling. Mm -hmm. So so Moses gets like a little bit of a pushback here when finally he appears again on the scene in, in this week's reading where God kind of tells him, you know, you don't really know what God is um, to the full extent that you need to know. You, you're thinking God as Elohim, which is that he appears in the world in a way which is uh, manifest all the time. Makes sense. It's right. And that, and that you can, you can draw a line from, you know, with the cause to the effect from the cause to the effect, like in the natural world, but in the world of human beings of, of life, it's messy. And Hashem says to him, I am Hashem. I am Yudke Vavke. I am the God that requires a deeper and longer uh, view of what God does in the world. It's as if God is saying to him, according to the according to the commentaries, that he's comparing Moses to those that had a deeper faith, uh, like to the patriarchs before, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob that he actually com uh, contrasts in the next verse where he says, you know, I appear to them with a different name, God says, with a different name, with a name that's much more concealed. Ushmi yudke vavke lenodatilem, and my name of the tetragrammaton, of the deepest name, was not uh, manifest to them. Which means, on one hand, it means their level of prophecy was not as deep as yours, but on the other hand, I'm inviting you to understand that God's providence of the world is also on that level. The, the, the providence of God runs on a much deeper level, which is not manifest. It's it's there, but it's much more subtle. I mean, they understood more the nature of God, but didn't weren't on a high as as high of a prophetic level, just for the lack of understanding of right. the, that name. Right, prophecy is about. Is about the revelation of God and belief. It's about the the subjective connection to God. Right. Words, you love and believe in God because it's personal, and that and they had personal connections which were incredibly deep. But it's it it didn't come with a revelation that is open. In other words, God decided to reveal Himself to Moses in a way that was necessary for what, whatever was necessary to go down at that point. Right. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but, but that's basically what's going on. So what, what we're trying to get to over here is that um, there's, a, there's, an ups and a, there's an up and a down here of Moses' career, which and this is like the down. This is one of the downs. And, it, and it, what does it mean it's a down? It means it's, there's a learning curve, let's just say, going on, and... and um, and, and, and God is pointing it out to him and saying, like, in order for you to be the real messenger, you have to see things differently. Okay, let's just keep it at that. However, 
what follows here in this original reading is that Moses is treated to by God to this like amazing vision of what it's going to be um, for the for the people of Israel um, after being saved or the process of being saved, the process of being saved and what it's going to mean for them to be saved from Egypt. So in here, he describes what we celebrate on the night of Passover, four expressions of redemption, right? Which are, without going into exactly each particular phrase, but there are four expressions and four phrases that have to do with redemption. Because we have to understand that already at this point, the, the, the Torah is inviting us to, 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 to get deeper into the idea of what it means to be free. Right? There are different levels of freedom. Okay. And when we use the word freedom, you ask people what it means exactly. It's a, it's a deep concept. It's not something you can just translate. It depends what it is you're talking about, right? So um, the idea of freeing, I'll take you out of Egypt. I'll save you from Egypt. I'll take you for me. I claim you for me as a people. And uh, I will redeem you. And then I will bring you to the land, right? These are all verbs that are used to describe like different levels of exodus different levels of of leaving something behind and and moving into a new situation a new mentality a new mind space a new um, reality of course the, the physical reality is the most obvious one but to say that you probably could have used one expression I don't have to use so many expressions to to discuss something that's just on the surface. Right. There's a lot of expressions because there's something subtle going on also. That's 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 huge, but it's not so um, obviously seen. Right. So there's these, there's the understanding then that there's many different kinds of slaveries and many different kinds of freedom. Then there's not just physical slavery and physical freedom as our friend bob marley says emancipate yourself from mental freedom mental slavery yeah. <laughs> i knew that was going to come up in our conversation today we were so ready to pull that one out yeah. <laughs> Put it the background music maybe <laughs> but so i'd like to point out one thing and i'd like to point out about how responsible we are for not just our own freedom and feeling of freedom and why it's so important to have that feeling of freedom um, because we're going to essentially say that freedom is not just a feeling. It's, it's a, um, it's living as an independent individual, which is basically to maximize your potential. You need to feel that you are free to be, um, to be an individual. You need to be free, right? If, if you, if you are not free, then as an individual, you're just, you are just part of something else. So the question is, to what extent are you part of something else and entrapped by something else versus um, being yourself? Now, th those words carry a lot of modern meaning and a lot of like, I'm not talking, I'm trying to appeal to you right now, not to go into like, you know, clear cut categories and you know, try to think up this thing again. You just threw me for a loop because you said first freedom isn't a feeling, but then, you know, it's a state of being able to actually, it, it's a state of reality. The, 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 I, it, realistically, where I am right now, I, ha, I am my own person. 
Right, you're living independently. But th there's also this concept of, you know, what, um, remind me his name, please, the, the famous psychologist who invented logotherapy in the Holocaust. Oh, Victor um, Frankl. Victor Frankl, yeah. That's, that was, like, huge. I would say that's a level of freedom. Like, it, it, no one in the camps or in the Holocaust had physical freedom. They weren't independent beings. Yet there is this understanding that there can be mental freedom. Yeah. And like I said, there's a lot of different levels, and we have to start looking at uh, at the clock. <laughs> so, so let's just maybe we can continue next week because these there are a lot of weekly portions that talk about the you know the Exodus. So, just wanna, let's let's talk about this thing that the when God says I'm going to take you for me for a nation, and and um, I'll be for you for an Elohim. Right. Again, that word of God, like, I'll be for you as a God of justice, which means you'll be able to see me in the world as as a power of justice. But there is justice in the world, not just in the natural world, but there is justice. At that point, you will be cognizant. You will, be, you will understand that it is I, the two names of God, that have taken you out of Egypt. Mitachat sivlot Mitzrayim, from under the burden of Egypt. Now this word, I've taken you out from under the burden of Egypt, um, is actually mentioned twice. It's I, in the first expression of, I will take you out from under the burdens of Egypt, and I will save you from their slavery, and I will redeem you in a miraculous way, and I will take you, when it says again, I will take you, it says I'll take you from out from under the, the burden of Egypt. So it could be the first idea of burden is simply burden, right? Now, this is actually work, even though that's also a little bit redundant. But here, when it repeats the idea of Sivlot Mitzrayim, I'm, I believe... Which means the suffering of Egypt. Right, the burden. It literally, Sivlot Lisbold means to, to burden something. You know, to, to, to carry a burden. But it... It means, and I've seen this in, in thinkers over the last, you know, century, that they they also interpret the word sivlot mitzrayim means what you're willing to accept, what you're willing to tolerate, which is which is just an analogy to imagine yourself carrying a burden. Yeah. When you're carrying a burden on your back, you you can only have it on your back if you're willing to tolerate it, right? And you're willing to accept that weight. Mm -hmm. If it's too if you're not, if you, I mean, you you might have all the desire to tolerate a weight that's you know a thousand pounds, but it will squash you. Right, so there, so you won't even go there. But there will be weight that that you could physically carry that you're willing to tolerate, you're willing to carry, but it's damaging to you. Mm -hmm. Right, it doesn't. That, I want you to have that image in your mind about what this concept is that we're talking about because what we're saying is this concept of what you're willing to accept is the is the essence of what slavery is and that's why it's repeated here god needs to take us out he needs to help us take us out of the mentality and this is bob marley you know mental slavery you know mental slavery means what you're willing to accept on yourself as your reality. So if if you if you grew up in Egypt and your parents were slaves and you're a slave, 
or if you lived in some other country in some other time in history where your parents were slaves and, and you're a slave, right? And what that means is that your parents, when you look at your parents, you say, these people are miserable. They're not happy people. They're not living independent lives, even in their inner selves. They're not really, they're completely um, pendant, pending, sorry, on, on someone else or something else for whatever it is that they are. Their identity has been taken over by something else or someone else. Mm-hmm. So they, they're completely miserable, really. You can't have a happy person who lives that way. And children will pick up on it. You know, children will generally come into the world and they'll look at it until they're taught all of this fear and cowering down and, you know, uh, in, in the face of uh, the oppressor. There's also real consequences if we're talking about, you know, real slavery. Yeah, I'm, sorry, I'm talking about, about that, you know, but I'm just saying it starts from that idea. It starts... It starts from the indoctrination of the child to accept a certain reality that is his reality. Mm-hmm. Now, I know we're getting into the stuff of like books and movies and like the world understands this idea that, that you know, it's up to you to if you if you ha- if you can see something else that will break you out of your shackles and allow you to live an independent, fully independent life. So then that's, you need to go there. You need to go there and not be afraid. Right. Remember Nelson, Nelson Mandela's speech when he, uh, when he was freed from prison. It was like very, um, very memorable speech about how um, he's saying that the fear, uh, speaking to his constituents, the fear that we have is just the fear of ourselves. We're too afraid to accept the responsibility of freedom. Because to be free is scary if you're used to not being free. Right. Um, and even in the case of the B'nai Israel, the, the children of Israel and the Torah, it also comes up very often that after the freedom of physical freedom of Egypt, they still have this mentality of not being able to break out from the, from the fear that was instilled into them as, as, as slaves mentality of slavery is much more pernicious, is much more damaging than the slavery itself. It's like the elephant that gets tied down with the with the ball ball chain, what's it called? Mm-hmm. Right? When they're young and then they get used to not being able to move and then when they're massive they don't have anything but they still don't move because they were in their mind these like they've self they've limited themselves right. to that weight chain. That's actually more pathetic. Mm-hmm. See it. Like, <laughs> so you can see people that have all of the conditions in the world to live um, independent, happy lives, but yet they're constrained by the chains of whatever they were indoctrinated or conditioned to believe about themselves. Beliefs, fears, thoughts. Right. So that that's really what I want to get to over here. Um, because if you if you put it into the story, you see how it actually it, it pans out. Because when Moses comes to the people the first time with Aaron, and they're willing to believe him, and you know they're hopeful, and then you know, and then it doesn't work out with Pharaoh. That could that could have you know, we, we, the, he could have bounced off of that problem. 
and we could have come back and tried again. However, because Moses speaks to God at the end of last week's portion and says, you know, this isn't working. You know, like, why did you even send me? It's only gotten worse. So what that shows is that a person that has been, you know, just installed as the leader of the people, how his attitude creates the constriction of the focus or of the ability to believe of the people as well. Because in this in this portion, when Moses given, gives them this entire, you know, vision of wonderful, wonderfully de- detailed uh, 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 freedom speech, you know, four expressions of freedom, etc., and and you know, including the idea of getting to the promised land. After he tells that to the people this time, they weren't able to listen to him. They were too stuck in their own slavery mind and their own mentality so what i'm trying to say over here is that if you read carefully i'm not proving it to you but um what what i see over here is that the leader who was supposed to be the leader he actually limited the ability of the people to have a vision because um it's not just that other people can can constrict our vision and could make us um, feel conditioned that we're, you know, we're totally limited in what we can do much more than what we actually are able to do. Um, But the people that are nearest and dearest and the people that we look to for guidance are this, are those people that can do the same, perhaps even more. Um, I just want to leave, uh, leave um, because we're running out of time. I want to leave you with a, um, a beautiful uh, midrash. It's a source, you know, a rabbinic source that talks about the first encounter of Moses with prophecy. Um, it says that God is as if having a conversation with himself. And he says, if I appear to Moses, you know, with a great voice of prophecy, you know, maybe that will be too overpowering. And if I appear to him, with a negligible voice, so then he'll, maybe he'll ignore it. So I'll come to him in the voice of his father. And that's why the verse says that when God appeared to Moses for the first time, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? So it's as if it's like first the God of his father and then the God of his of the patriarchs. So Moses, hearing that voice, says, Oh, Father. I'm here. What do you need? How can I serve you? And God says, it's not your father. It's the God of your father. And Moses says, oh, I'm so proud that my my father appears to me before the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appears to me. So what that Midrash, I believe, is saying is a very, very beautiful thing that has a lot to do um, what we're talking about, but a little bit of more of a positive um, angle, which is, which is that you know the voice of the father, of course, is mo- it needs to be moderate in order for it to be relevant. But that's not what we're focusing on. But this, the second point of the medrash is saying is that our vision of spirituality and of God is, which is essentially the same, is um, created and expanded or constrained by the visions of 
are the guardians of the people that are nearest and dearest, the people that we look to for naturally for um, leadership and for inspiration, which are our parents, essentially, in the beginning. And then they can morph into other people once a person, a child, you know, grows up and independence and becomes independent from, from their parents. So we are the arbiters of the, of the breadth of vision that our children have in spirituality. That's what it means. So over here too, you know, Moses is, is like the father of the people. He's coming to them as the savior. If Moses himself has doubts about God's providence, so the people themselves will too. He's just lowered the bar. And so the, the message, the takeaway message over here is that when we talk about freedom, we are not only the ones that are responsible for our own freedom, but we are actually responsible for the freedom of others. Almost like a collective freedom. Right. We need to we need to graze children to to be free. <laughs> uh, it, I, it's funny because I once spoke about this um, in Chile um, to parents, and I was uh, I was I, I think I called the class um, <clears throat> freedom from freedom from freedom from parents or something, freedom from sla parent slavery or something like that. And I, I, it, was, it had a little catchy name. But the, the bottom line is I was trying to show parents how we unnecessarily um, res restrict and you know, constrict and limit the vision of our children for no reason. A lot of, a lot of times it's dressed in um, words like safety, and you know, being be realistic, realistic and prudent, and it's hard for parents. I mean, you don't. Ultimately, a parent has to feel that by limiting a child, you're actually expanding the child. You're actually having them grow. But it's not limits just for the sake of limits, right? It's it's a limit. It's a growth that grows from limits because we know. That, you know, like, uh, I think the pendulum has swung in a totally different direction these days where freedom has no name, you know, it has no definition at all for parents these days. And so children are feeling much more abandoned in a sense because ultimately if a parent doesn't care enough to, to struggle with me and to put limits, so then they don't care about me either, which means that the parent loses their... Um, status as being like a guide in life. Um, but again, those limits are not just put arbitrarily. They're actually put because it's better for the child and it's better for the growth. And it ultimately will prove to be a much more of a, um, an expanding uh, influence on their life as opposed to uh, limiting. So let's just take that as a, as a take. <laughs> The cut, and uh, we had an open conversation today that was much more open and less scripted. We didn't write any ideas that we were going to talk about before. But if we have um, a general takeaway, we talked about um, the idea of analyzing texts and how, if you want to take a text seriously, you really need to engage yourself in it, see what you would um, feel is the essence of the text and then compare with what the text is actually saying so that you can contrast um, the you and the text. And then in that interface, that's where you start finding 
and learning amazing things if you're willing to open yourself up to that. It's because you're hearing a different voice. And then we spoke about the idea of God and the names of God and what that means and a little bit about prophecy and what that means in the Jewish tradition. And we spoke about finally the idea of freedom being, of course, um, the mental constraints on our own individuality and our own independence that create a sense of slavery to an arbitrary uh, force. Sometimes it's arbitrary, sometimes it's represented by someone. What we're saying here is that we don't want to be that someone that limits um, those people under our tutelage. We want to be responsible for them to feel independent, realistically independent and realistically free in a way that they can become, you know, the greatest people that they can become. Very nice. Well, thanks for joining everyone. Catch you next week.